1: Hey, everyone. David Kern here. Welcome to Close Reads. Before we get into the show today with our special guests, Karen Swallow-Prior and Joshua Gibbs, who are joining Heidi White and I for our discussion of Frankenstein, I wanted to remind you about how you can join the conversation. Head over to Facebook, search for Close Reads in that search bar, and you can join the conversation over on the Close Reads podcast discussion group. And over on Instagram, you can follow us at Close Reads Podcasts. We also have our newsletter, which is closereads.substack.com. And we have bonus episodes and some sweet show swag over at patreon.com slash where we are currently discussing crime and punishment a little bit at a time. The Close Reads audience is the greatest audience in the podcast world, and we're thankful that you've taken the time to, to uh, be a part of it. So thanks for that. Thanks for listening. And with that, here is today's episode. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads. I'm David Kern and I'm here with Heidi White and of course Karen Swallow Pryor and Joshua Gibbs and we are here to discuss Frankenstein. We've come to the end of our journey. We're here to discuss the final pages, the final chapters of this classic story. First of course, how are y'all doing? Karen, how are you?
0: I'm I'm good. I'm actually gearing up um, to start faculty orientation at my new school southeastern baptist theological seminary um the semester is starting right around the corner um so it feels like the end of a, of a podcast and the end of a summer is near too
1: the the summer that never really happened but yet happened yeah. at the same time yeah 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 well you said beforehand that you were you got out of the pool to come do this so i think everyone should yeah. know how much you're sacrificing to be on the podcast <laughs>
0: I, it's a lot. It's a lot.
1: So. <laughs> well, and speaking of sacrificing, Josh Gibbs is traveling right now, and it's seven thirty in the morning where he lives. So, Josh, thank you for getting up, and uh, and despite the fact that you're on vacation, recording with us. Hey, that's all right. You're, are you out in Idaho still? Out in Idaho. Yeah, technically Pullman, Washington, right now. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Well, thanks you. Thank you for doing that, and thank you for uh, setting aside the time despite your time away with family. Heidi, what are you sacrificing?
2: I'm glad you asked, David. Um, I am. (laughs) I
1: feel like, now now I feel like I shouldn't have asked.
2: (laughs) Uh, I am sacrificing nothing and I'll tell you why. Because my amazing, wonderful, like so, so great brother is in town with his tiny kids. And they're a little bit loud sometimes. He's got three of them. And uh, they all went to go get donuts. So I am sacrificing donuts which is pretty sad, but it's been great. I had like half an hour to read in the quiet (laughs) on the porch so that I could record this podcast. So I, I am, I'm sacrificing nothing except donuts.
1: Okay. And I don't need
2: those. I'm 41. (laughs) I don't need donuts. David, Mm -hmm. how about you? Mm
1: -hmm. Everybody needs donuts. Uh, I, I, I was just thinking about the idea of finding quiet to read and I don't, that is a concept not really that I'm a thing for you. not terribly familiar with. Yeah. It usually involves 11 p.m., 11.30 p.m. Um, but let me see if I can figure out how to segue us in. Is there a way to segue into the end of this book that doesn't that involves the things that we're talking about? I don't think so. So let's just talk about the book. makes
2: a bigger yeah. sacrifice? <laughs> yeah, I
1: don't he, uh, Yeah, there's a lot of sacrifices made in this book. We are here to talk about the final passages of this book. Uh, before we dive into the conversation, and I do have a preliminary question for us, I want to remind everyone who's listening to head over to Facebook or to email us because next week we will be uh, answering your questions. So if you have, you know, uh, questions, you can email them to us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. Or of course, if you're on the Facebook page or want to be, you can head over to that page and we will start a thread and then you can post all your questions in the thread there. And we will uh, use that as kind of a, as a guideline. We'll try to get through as many as we can, but I'm sure there will be a couple that will stump us and we'll have to spend, you know, some extended time on, but those are always great episodes uh, and they always help us identify where we've left some gaps in the conversation and where there's some dissonances remaining. So uh, please do, uh, you know, send any questions that you have to one of those two places. Okay, let's talk about this book. I want to talk about two things two, there's two sort of themes, two topics of conversations that I've got in my head, and hopefully those will take us in the directions of what's in your individual heads as well and the two themes are um the notion of a satisfying ending and questions of justice so i want to i want to start with one of those two things where should we start should we start with questions of justice or the question of whether there's a satisfying ending in this book
3: oh let's start with questions of justice
1: okay this is like jeopardy Questions of justice for 400 please Um, so Do you guys believe that justice is met at the end of this book? Like is justice been served when we close that, when we close the book and that final page is passed and Josh, since you chose it, I'm going to put you on the spot first.
3: Uh, I would say no, not even a little bit, not even remotely close. Uh, and I would say that's because the people who deserved the truth never got it. Mm. There's no real confession. There's no satisfying confession of sin. I could be content that justice was mildly served if Victor were to give a robust um, account of all of his sins and simply admit all of his mistakes. I would say Mm. that that would be the beginning of justice. Mm. But in the... Several speeches that Victor has to give to Robert and even to the crew, he's so confused and so inconsistent in his own assessment of his life. Uh, Victor doesn't know what his own life meant, and that's apparent in several speeches where he just contradicts himself back and forth, changes his mind again and again, and really seems to have no idea what his life meant. Either to himself or and no idea what his life even meant to other people. So, uh, in the absence of a confession, at least, of course, he can't bring any of the dead back. But in the absence of a genuine confession, I, I don't think justice can be served or can be said to be satisfied by the end of the book.
1: Heidi, do you agree with Josh?
2: Um, I. I completely agree with Josh, and everything that he said about repentance and confession. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the thing that you look for. Uh, uh, without, Sometimes we don't even realize that we're looking for that in a book, um, but we are all the time, mm-hmm. just as we are in our own human life, right? Can you admit what you have done is wrong and, and make that right in some way? Mm-hmm. I'm, I am going to counter question Josh. <laughs> Do you examine? think of justice, <laughs> is justice a private virtue or a public virtue? And is confession and repentance required for justice to be served in the public square? Because um, no, I thought yeah. of this as more of a public question. Yeah. So go yeah, ahead. I would
3: agree that um, that justice could be meted out on Victor and he could be kicking and screaming the whole way. And, um, that that would, that would not be the fault of the storyteller that Victor resisted justice. Um, Mm -hmm. but, and this might be a, a matter of discussion for a point later in the episode, but, um, if we examine the end of Victor's life, uh, his death, his death doesn't make a whole lot of sense if we're thinking of it as being illness related, uh, and if there's some kind of um, sentence that he needs to, to, to serve, um, he never approaches it at all. So if we look at the beginning of the, the beginning of the novel, the letters are dated early August, and if we look at the letters at the end of the novel, they're dated early September. And it's easy to get the impression that, um, uh, that Victor dies of some illness. But if you read the book end closely, it's obvious that he's not on his deathbed. The man is not on the verge of dying. He survived for a whole month. He's edited 100 pages of Robert Walton's letters. The man is fine. He dies because they're headed back to port and he can't kill his son. And so he has no reason to live. Uh, so I, I think he simply gives up living. And there's no way of viewing his death as something that's thrust upon him because he acted unrighteously or unjustly. I think he more or less mm-hmm. simply refuses to go on living. Um, and and so if we were viewing justice as a sort of public virtue, um, even his death is, is more or less pathetic and selfish. I, I don't believe that he succumbs to an illness. Not after a month on a boat of talking all day and editing a book, that's, that's not somebody who, die, who dies of, uh, you know, um, some kind of horrible flu or something like that. So I, I think we have every reason to believe that he could be healthy enough to return to a normal life, maybe even befriend Robert Walton. But when presented with his life, he says, no, nah, I'd just rather be dead and kind of cashes in at that moment. So, yeah, you, your question is great. Uh, virtue, uh, justice is a could be viewed as a public virtue as well. Um, but but viewed either way, I don't think that the book, I don't think that the story, gives any justice to to Victor. Karen, what's your take? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, these are that's a good good question. Good discussion. Um, I I what I'm thinking of as um, Josh and Heidi are talking in this question of justice is I'm just I'm reminded of how romantic capital r this book is and how it you know both the you know even even the monster as well as victor and walton to some extent and by the way i want to you know we need to talk about walton sort of as a the the frame device mm-hmm. a little bit but just sticking closely to the monster and frankenstein um there's so much self-indulgence right so much emotional self-indulgence, so much about how how all of this pain and suffering is there pain and suffering and again not to you know i I, I don't I don't know your audience that well, and I'm just I'm just talking and teaching the way I teach in mm-hmm. my classroom, which is to kind of make connections to things going on around us in everyday life. But you know, my own awareness um, is growing as I pay more attention to um, sex abuse in the church, and uh, and uh, and. And recognizing when someone who's been involved in that in some whatever way is repentant versus not repentant. Um, And there are so many testimonies and statements and proclamations of those who are supposed to be repenting. And when you listen closely, you see that it's really just about them. It's really just about their pain and their suffering and how this terrible, you know, this thing has hurt them um, as opposed to those who are really the victims, like in this story, you know, Justine and Elizabeth and uh, William. So anyway, so I'm seeing a lot of narcissism at play here, um, which is maybe, you know, the self-indulgence of romanticism taken to an extreme. So I, I don't see real repentance um, as you know, the topic that Josh brought up Uh, and in terms of justice, whether personal or private, I don't think that you can have justice without repentance, you know, either privately or publicly.
1: Hmm. I feel like, we could have a whole podcast discussion about the relationship between repentance and justice, but I don't. <laughs> I don't know that that's. I could be wrong. I'm just throwing that
0: out there. I haven't. Uh, I'd have to flesh that thought out a little bit more. But um, I mean, I guess you. Yeah. Anyway. So.
2: <laughs> How do you go ahead? I think that what <laughs> I love that you're connect this. This also goes ties back to the question of the satisfying ending, which I know we're not talking about yet. But here we go. That well, we sort of I'm, are. Right, exactly, exactly, because they're so connected. And I, what you said, Karen, uh, is super insightful about the romantic novel. Because when David, even at the top of the podcast, brought up the satisfying ending, my mind starts thinking, what would possibly be a satisfying ending in this novel? Like, what, what would it, what would it be? It's almost. I was and, asking and the myself the whole the, time I was reading. Like the whole the Because you think like a craftsman, right, I tend to just like accept the book on its own terms and then get lost in whatever, and then I have to be reminded that uh, of these kinds of questions and and so I was thinking as we were talking is what she 's trying to create this completely unique situation, unprecedented in the history of the world right there's this monster that's created and uh, by a man, mother. Eve, God, Satan, Adam guy, like it's all conflated <laughs> together and there's like no categories for it. And and then um and so you brought up last week also, Karen, this idea of the modern novel that that isn't normative, that's that's presenting a complicated situation for the reader to sort out, and the book doesn't tell us what to think about it. We as moderns are very used to that, but this audience isn't. And and I find myself even saying, what kind of absolute would I impose upon Victor here at the end or the monster specifically here at the end? We've been talking about Victor, but what would justice be for the monster? Like if we were trying to tie it up with a neat little bow, how would we even do that? Yeah, Um, And I think she does a good job of creating a situation that feels completely unique. So we kind of have to sort through our own norms Um, whether it is or isn't completely unique, of course, is open for discussion. But when you're reading it, you kind of, as the reader, get lost in that. So what would, I guess my question then would, what what would justice be if we say he, they didn't, it didn't happen, which I agree, what would it be?
3: Go ahead, Josh. So, um, the, the question of justice at this point, having read the entire novel is interesting because, uh, at about similar distances from the beginning and the end, we have courtroom scenes. Uh, There's Justine's courtroom scene. And then there's the scene where, excuse me, Victor goes to court and spills his guts. And the two courtroom scenes make interesting uh, photo negatives of one another. In the first courtroom scene, Victor should be doing all the talking and keeps entirely silent. And then... Hmm. At the courtroom scene towards the end of the book, he's the only one who does any talking. And in that second courtroom scene, uh, which I think everyone read for this this past week, uh, Victor has been saying often over the course of the book, uh, the reason why I never said any of this, I never told anyone, is because nobody would believe me. But by the end of the book, there's not a soul that Victor has told his story to that has not believed the story. We believe it. Robert believes it. Even the magistrate believes it. And the magistrate's objection to Victor's demand that they go send out a crew of people to find the monster is the way that you've described him. There's no point in seeking out the monster. Uh, He's super fast. He's super strong. He disappears. What do you want us to do? But it's interesting in that second courtroom scene, which is Victor's trial, really (laughs) in Victor's trial, he says all that he has to say, he admits all that he has to admit. And at the end of it, He's angry at other people for not doing what he wants, which is the inverse of what the trial ought to be, where he finally admits everything that he's done. He finally accepts responsibility for it. Uh, But at the end, he's pointing fingers at other people um, because they're unwilling to clean up his crimes for him. He said, fine, I'll do it on my own, as though this is some kind of heroic thing (laughs) to go take care of the, the mess that he himself has admitted to making.
1: Karen, were you going to say something? Uh, You know,
0: that just uh, is another example of um, Victor's narcissism, right? That it's just so much about him and, and that courtroom scene. I mean, I think that the way that Josh just described that, that actually makes that point even more vividly um, of just how narcissistic he is. I mean, here he's, this is a trial where he's being tried for murder and and he's believed and gets off unlike poor Justine. Um, And yet, you know, Victor is indignant that uh, it doesn't, you know, that they don't respond his way. That's a great analysis, Josh.
1: It's interesting to me a little bit, at least that, I asked the question about justice and the conversation has been just about Frankenstein. Um, because there's a lot of other scenarios, you know, does does the monster get justice for example? Does justice served against him or does he receive justice? Is an interesting part of the question as well. What do you guys think about that? Heidi, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I a little sad to be asked first because I was hoping that Karen <laughs> and Josh would say something extremely wise about this and then I'd be like that because okay karen say something wise yeah, all right I, yeah i did have you know it just you never know i a
0: thought did jump immediately into my mind it's a really great question that i hadn't thought about um the way you put it um it's interesting in that sense and the fact just simply the fact that our discussion about justice has revolved around victor rather than uh the monster i think shows Shelley's success. In what I think is her, you know, really one of her central themes, which is showing um, the guilt of the creator rather than the creation in making something that is prone to um, crime and prone to uh, evil and suffering and pain. Um, In other words, you know, the monster is... In many respects, in this understanding of, of of a creator God and his creation, the monster is the helpless victim um, because he never asked to be made uh, and he was made corrupt or able to be corrupted um, and of course, you know that's the central sort of question and theme of the novel, but we just sort of shown where we land uh, in the discussion in the course that our discussion just took that we really that we really hold victor much more culpable or the creator much more culpable than the creation.
1: Mm. So, I mean, there was like, it was interesting that Like instinctively everybody latched onto the question of whether Frankenstein got what he deserved and then whether there's sort of this, the universe itself has been set to right. Um, and then there's the question of, did the monster get what he deserved? And then did he also, did the universe get set to right in relation to him? So I'm interested in kind of, Within the, within the novel, Josh, can we look at each of those, like those four quadrants here? <laughs> so on the one hand, does the monster and Frankenstein get what they deserve? And then does the novel seem to be saying at the end that all has been set to rights? When we're talking about it, are we saying that the universe, that universe question? Or do we believe at the end that since Frankenstein does die, he got what he deserved?
3: I mean, I know that I'm oversimplifying the question of justice, but... Um, So, the monster does not get what he deserves. Um, I don't know that the monster ever gets what he deserves a single moment of his life. Uh, His whole life is um, eaten up in, in scene after scene where no one gives him what he deserves. And... He doesn't really give the world what it deserves in return, but, um, but it does come at the tail end of a lot of mistreatment. Um, I don't think that Shelley looks, Shelley looks unfavorably upon suicide. Uh, it, it seems to be a noble death. And I mean, this is the way that the, I mean, the sorrows of young Werther end with a, with a suicide as well. And the monster has learned how to die from this, this book. Uh, and, and wants to imitate what he's seen in this book. Um, I think Percy Shelley also w- would defend suicide. Um, so maybe within the mind of the author, he goes off to die a somewhat noble death, uh, or as noble a death as he's he's going to die. Um, but I don't think uh, I don't think that justice is served in this.
1: Okay, Heidi. They said stuff. So now you
3: have to say something wise in
1: response to their why. (laughs) So,
2: um, phew. Um, I really like what Josh is saying. I think according to the terms of the book, he, that's exactly right. That the monster has some kind of nobility in its death and some kind of like pathetic sadness that's supposed to tug at our heartstrings. Again, this is a romantic novel that's appealing to our sentiment. Um, so it sets the terms for sentiment, and then it satisfies that. so, in a sense, there this is a case with the monster in which the satisfying ending is separate from the justice. I think it's satisfying what happens here. We kind of have this sense of you know the monster in some ways going off into the sunset like some kind of romantic hero um, but and that's a bit satisfying. I think it's completely unjust in this sense of applying private justice, which was my original question, that distinction, because he, he at least seems like somewhat repentant for what he's done in his final speech. Um, He still blames, but I think in some ways the monster puts the blame on the right, in the right place. When he makes a claim for sympathy, it's somewhat justified different from Victor when he makes a claim of of sympathy to our sympathies, we're kind of like rolling our eyes. But I I also think what is truly just and this is my these are my Christian norms, right? Like what is truly just is to take responsibility and to make it right in your life. And that the monster does not do and Victor does not do. And so in that sense justice is never satisfied which is why I asked the original question, is, are we at talking about public justice in the sense that what is evil is eradicated? And in that way, I think there is some justice in this book. The world is better off without the monster, and the monster is now about to die, if we believe him. The
1: world better off without Frankenstein? If the
2: world's better off without Frankenstein, and Frankenstein's dead, like... Thank God, right? So, and that's overly simplistic way of the eradication of the kind of cancer of the book. Mm-hmm. In that sense, justice is done. But Victor's death is not satisfying as all, as Josh pointed out. And but I think the monsters kind of is on the terms of the
3: book. Josh, you look like you want to say something. You, you... yeah, I I find the end of this book entirely satisfying. Um, I think that this is the only book I teach where I regularly get worked up to the point of tears while closing out the last few pages. Um, Part of what's satisfying about this book or the ending though is the, is this vexing missed connection in the last few pages Uh, because Victor dies. Victor would have made for an interesting companion for Robert Walton But given that Victor has introduced the monster to Robert Walton, it's a pity that Robert Walton can't find the friend he was looking for in the monster because now we finally have the two people who want a friend sharing the screen for the first time. Right? Victor never wanted a friend, never wanted a companion, Mm. so he and Robert wouldn't work out. The monster's been looking for a companion and a friend his entire life, but because his father was a major creep, That wouldn't work out. He's really ugly. No one wants to be with him. But finally, he gets to this open-hearted liberal sort of guy, Robert Walton, and they get to—they have this one scene together. They share the—you know—they share the stage for just like five minutes. And I, though I find the the end of the book satisfying, I also find it—and this is maybe a weird turn of phrase—but pleasingly vexing that this but it almost works out like like these people almost connect and then mm-hmm. go their separate ways forever and there's a there's a kind of maybe tragic beauty in how close these two guys came who could have been best friends maybe the only friend that this monster could have had in the whole world the only person who understood his story the only person who needed someone like this monster um and then they almost become friends but but then they don't. And then and I like how well this is maybe a twisted thing to say. I like how tragic that is. That that that's pleasingly tragic in my mind. Go ahead, Karen.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. now this is so great because when Heidi was talking, I this question came to mind and now Josh has just created even a smoother path toward the question. Um, so would it be helpful to talk about how this novel fits and doesn't fit you know the classical Aristotelian tragedy, tragic mode. So, um, I mean, Josh just talked about the tragic beauty, beauty, and and and, but what Heidi said that made me think of it more, uh, is, is the, is that the monster clearly evokes in us, fear and pity, which are the emotions that tragedy is supposed to evoke. But do you know? Are we are? Does the novel purge them, um, properly in order to fit? Sort of the Aristotelian tragic mode, um, mm. so that's that's one question. But then we ask all the other questions about what uh, tragedy is supposed to do. You know, this play between fate and free will. Um, the nobility of the of the tragic hero is the monster. The tragic hero is Victor. The tragic hero. So, I mean, obviously, this is not a classical tragedy but i do wonder if it's helpful to to talk about the ways in which it might be and then the ways it's not so yeah
3: well i'm
1: i'm certainly interested in the in it so do you want to do a little uh little mini lecture on it
0: <laughs> all right well i'll just okay yeah so some of it i'll just i'll just <laughs> repeat and i'm just throwing the question out there so basically uh, uh, you know the Aristotelian tragedy features a tragic hero who is of noble birth um obviously, in any modern work of literature uh we're you know that's going to mean something a little bit different, so we would have to think about whether um you know is Victor Frankenstein noble in in some way which uh that would be one question um and then of course, the tragic hero um through a combination of of fate and his own uh Choices, his own free will, um, you know, makes a bad decision or ha- you know does something that was it- inevitable somehow inevitable either through his own choices or because of fate some combination um, and suffers a fall. Um, but this fall that, you know what makes Aristotelian tragedy tragic and Aristotelian um, <laughs> is <laughs> that things are made right. Not just for the individual, but for society, so you know the fact that you know the Oedipus suffers this huge uh punishment of um blinding himself and exiling himself as a result of his um of his uh, sleeping with his mother and killing his father unbeknownst to him um that purges the land of sin, and he suffers, but it's uh you know his his society uh is cured um so anyway so anyway those are those are the questions i don't know any anybody have any thoughts before I, so i can think about my questions as well, you
1: talk i do love the i'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned the noble birth thing because i think this book seems to be playing with that if not outright mm-hmm. commenting on it because on the one hand we have this character who you know josh has talked about his family at length we have frankenstein who ostensibly comes from this you know noble family in some way and I mean it's a little bit mysterious about where that nobility comes from and whether it's actually real and all that but then of course you have him creating this character who you know in his wildest dreams he imagines creating this noble character like it being a noble Mm -hmm. Frankenstein the monster's own birth rather would be a sort of noble birth and so it's, it's fascinating the way she seems to be I don't know if she's directly commenting on that but it's at least it's at least there it's interesting so glad you mentioned that so, so there's, you mentioned the idea of in the end this, whether things are made right for society. And I think that's what I was getting at with like there's
3: mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: these different kinds of... And it's Heidi's question too. So if we look at it from that way, can, it, can we just ask that question and see if we can come to a... We'll see if we have a consensus on that. In the end, are things made right for society at the end of this book? So Frankenstein's dead. The monster mm-hmm. is... Uh, <laughs> working on the sequel somewhere Mm
3: -hmm, mm -hmm. or
1: dead one of the
3: right
0: right um i you know i guess maybe i do think so i do think that you know the world has been rid of victor frankenstein um and probably is better off because of it i guess shall we say um
1: do we think the book thinks that i don't mean to stop you there but do we think the book is saying that his death makes the world better I mean, obviously we get outside of his head, so that helps us. But Right.
0: I mean, I do in a way, I mean, I do for a number of reasons, but even just what Josh said earlier, I mean, it's it, suicide is noble. Um, And in a way, his death, I mean, he doesn't, it's not suicide, but it's this idea of, you know, the, losing the will to live, I guess, is a kind of um, self-inflicted death. Um, And we see that a, a lot in literature. So, you know, what we would, you know, Suicide or losing the will to live isn't always so uh, clearly distinguished because these characters aren't, you know, hanging themselves or taking a gun to their head, but they're still surrendering to death. Um, So I think in a way, yes, I think that um, the novel does suggest that the world is better without a Victor Frankenstein.
1: Josh and Heidi, do you agree with that? You want to take issue with it? I mean, do we have a consensus on that point?
2: (laughs) I I want to make a comment on this that I think goes to the question of the noble birth. In in an Aristotelian tragedy, uh, in a classical tragedy, and we see this in Shakespeare too all the time, that – the reason that the tragic hero has to be of noble birth is because there's something at stake in his character Mm -hmm. for the good of the society in which he is in. So, uh, there, it was an accepted Mm. assumed idea that a moral, strong, good King would equate then to an ordered and Mm -hmm. just society. So that's why the tragic hero had to be of noble birth. Um, his character had implications for the land and, um, and, and in a sense, the modern novel moves away from that progressively, in which we get, now we have these, you know... We didn't the, like King the, so
1: much after a while. Right,
2: the Lone <laughs> Ranger riding into the sunset. Uh, it goes from a, the, the good of the hero is the good of the society to kind of these Lone Ranger characters. And and that changes the stakes of the, mm-hmm. the nature of the character of the hero. And I think in this novel, there's a little bit of that. And And if, maybe if Mary Shelley... Had you know, in one sense, you can say it had to be because it was a romantic novel, so you need kind of this Lone Ranger character at the center of it. This, you know, this, this guy who had all these abilities and the word self indulgent, whatever. Uh, maybe the novel needed that, but on the other hand, I kind of think if she had been maybe a little bit more skilled, she would have put some stakes a little higher in the, center, the central characters. Because in a sense, the world is better off without Victor and the monster because uh, Victor and the monster are bad and, and it takes out two bad people. Uh, but in another sense, it doesn't really matter because mm-hmm. they had, had no leadership. They had no stakes. They were, uh, it's a very private novel. It's about a family, mm-hmm. not about a society. Um, and as Josh so, said, the a,
1: family doesn't even like to be with people.
2: Exactly. I, I would just interject.
0: This is such a great analysis, Heidi. Um, except for Walton. So, so, that's so a great point. So Walton, you know, he's not society, but he's another individual, uh, and his life is greatly um, influenced by what happens. So, yeah, hmm. that's, that's true. Hmm.
3: Josh, you want to add something? Oh, I, I was enjoying uh, Heidi's comment and and Karen's recapitulation of of Aristotelian tragedy, which is almost like one of those um, I have this knack for forgetting the rules of card games the second that I walk away from them. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I, I almost I, I think that I forget I, I forget what Aristotelian tragedy is every time um, I walk away from a conversation, so I'm always hearing it again as, as though it's from the first, first time. Uh, I was only going to interject, and this is only a tangential kind of comment uh, there's somewhere I forget where where um, David Hart points out that Saint Peter's tears in the Gospel are the first tears ever cried by a common person in a work of literature, and that prior to Saint Peter's tears, it's all noblemen and kings crying. Uh, but but the Gospel story is the first story where common people are granted the dignity uh, of being allowed to weep on a stage, uh, which which I find intriguing with the the discussion of aristotelian tragedy uh because of course back in back in ancient greece not only uh, not only do we need a nobleman in order to have a tragedy but just all stories are about noblemen and um, the gospel is one of the first stories that allows common people to to play a significant role Hmm. that's who said that david bentley hart yeah, David Hart says that I think it might be it's just a side comment that he makes, maybe in his um two thousand years of Christianity textbook, part of a seventeen page footnote yeah. <laughs> right. so okay,
1: Karen, we got on that conversation because i I stopped you and said, Well, can we talk about this question of whether the book seems to think that the world is better off mm. without Frankenstein? and you were that was part of a series of comments you were making. <laughs> so I apologize for that. I want to give you a no. chance to keep mm-hmm. going. With what you, I think you were oh. talking about your comments on Aristot, this novel and relationship with Aristotelian tragedy.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, mean, it's just, it's just, I think it's uh, might be a helpful way of of assessing the novel. I don't know that I have, um, you know, just comparing it to these sort of standard measures of of tragedy. Um, we certainly have fate and free will at play throughout this i mean those are that's a a, a deliberate um theme clearly in the no, in the novel um and uh that's something that does change pretty significantly between the 1818 and the 1831 version um that it gets heightened you mean yeah, I the the I think that the role of I, I I'm not I haven't done a side by side analysis, but most critics are just say just say that that in the 1831 version, um, fate plays a more prominent role than in the earlier version. Um, so that's just interesting to me. Yeah, so I hmm. so I don't know. I think the questions of the nobility of both Frankenstein and the monster are 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 good and whether or not you know some sort of justice whether um communal or private is achieved at the end and um yeah those are kind of the big questions about tragedy um i think this is a a uh, the beginning of a of a modern i mean it's it's a modern novel um but that also means that it's kind of playing with these classical um traditions but in a different way uh hmm. And it's mm-hmm. not until we get to arthur, arthur miller's death of a salesman you know in 1949 or 50 or whenever that was where he act, and he actually writes a, a, an essay explaining that he's trying to write a tragedy for the common man um so i think in in Shelley, we definitely, because Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman, his life doesn't really matter to anyone else outside his family. But what we see in this novel is kind I think is kind of in, in the middle there. It's drawing on, it's playing with some of these themes. Um, and we do have a character who's sort of, who is somewhat noble and whose death matters to some people. Um, so it's not quite as modern as Death of a Salesman, but it's certainly not entirely Aristotelian either
1: so do you come away from the novel Josh that he finds it satisfying do you find it satisfying do you get the catharsis you're looking for
0: (laughs) um I I the catharsis I find I is in Walton Hmm. um it is entirely in in you know this frame narrative I can't it's it's really important it's central I keep coming back to that but the way that um I mean, I think that the, the real turning point in the novel is, um, you know, Walton's decision to turn the boat back, uh, you know, well, I mean, it's not much of a choice, uh, you know, it's, he's being, uh, mutinied by his crew, um, but I guess, you know, he still, he chooses to do that rather than, than be, you know, to be, than suicide, what would be the parallel, parallel decision for him, um, so I think wherever we look for these answers, I think Shelley uh, is directing us to Walton's letters, his decisions, hmm. um, the things that he says or that he relays that, um, that Frankenstein says to him. And so his change, his repentance, I guess, right? Because he turns, he literally turns the boat back.
3: Hmm.
0: I think that's where I find the satisfaction
1: Josh, for you, is the catharsis in that missing of the friendship? Is that like you said? It's this, well, what was the word you use? The the phrasing, the it's a
3: pleasurable tragedy or something like
1: that. Yeah. Is that yeah, is that a cathartic true. sort of thing for you?
3: No, I I actually I like Karen's comment a whole lot. I I think she's absolutely right on on Robert Walton. Robert Walton's the only fellow who gets a who makes a turning at the end, uh, and who, whose course of life might be altered for the better by having heard this story. Mm. Um, I like to, I like to picture Robert Walton 10 years after he gets back, um, living on a farm somewhere with a wife and, you know, a child and, um, a wife who's and, not his sister, right? Right. A, a wife who's <laughs> his who sister is mercifully already married. <laughs> oh, that's all. right, right, right. And, and, a, and a wife who's about the same age as he is, who he um, <laughs> who he regards as a as a free and autonomous individual. Uh, yeah, I, I, I like to think that, and that and that he spends uh, you know the rest of his days grateful that he nearly destroyed himself, but didn't that, that he was pulled away from something awful and, and that he never has a second thought about returning to the North Pole and somebody else does it and he doesn't have to. And I mean, I, I think that's a possibility that that's what ends up happening to Robert Walton. It's a, I don't know. I don't think that's that's such a long shot that, that he returns to England and he mulls over the whole trip and 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 he comes to some helpful conclusions about how he ought to live his life. Mm.
0: It's what happens to Mary Shelley, right? Mm. Um, of course, she doesn't know this at the point that she's writing this novel. Um, but she, you know, after, after uh, you know, she has three children die and one survive and her husband drowns at sea, which again, she didn't know was going to happen when she wrote this. Um, it's almost like she, she was writing out um, the trajectory that her life uh, would later take hmm. um you know she goes back to England and lives sort of a you know the right she continues to write things but lives a more respectable lifestyle um amid family and less controversy so
2: hmm. I
3: in, like in your, addition
0: yeah i I just like how you described Walton's future life. I agree with you <laughs>
3: <laughs> it, what's you're right on the, it's it's funny how the rest of her life pans out given the given the course of the novel. And maybe this is a—I mean, maybe this is a minor point—but when Shelley dies on that um, on that ill-fated boating trip, his body does wash ashore and he's burned on the beach. <laughs> isn't um, that,
0: Isn't it crazy that this novel so ends with well, the uh, when the monster saying, "I shall ascend my funeral yeah. pile. she didn't know that that was going to happen to her husband. I, it's
3: it's bizarre. It's uncanny it is. That, that both of these characters. Their fate ultimately references the fate of her of her husband as well. It's bizarre. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you might have a theory about that to save for a literary uh, literary
1: wacko theory podcast. Why I'll not? save it for the yeah the Twilight Zone um, <laughs> remake whenever it comes around. How do so for you? Where's the catharsis See if there is any? And so, then I want will then I want to go back and talk more about Walton and that framing device because I don't want to lose that.
2: I agree with that. I think that's true. I think that um, I have never understood the why the monster doesn't kill Frankenstein. Like, I wish that that would have... I wish that Frankenstein would have had a more dramatic death. I think it doesn't feel satisfying to me that he just dies. Like, I could... If I was writing this novel with all of the melodrama that she puts in so many different cases that she must've been trying to do something with his like peaceful death. And I, I kind of wish that the, that it had killed the ego and that the monster killed him. And, you know, there's a lot of, I think better ways Frankenstein could have died. I, I don't think, but here's, here's what I do think. I started with a don't and then I'm going to do. I do think that the monster fits the tragic the Aristotelian tragic hero, uh, archetype much better, Um, but still not perfectly because the monster doesn't have like the one fatal flaw that brings about his downfall, but he's a much more noble, internally noble character. I'm not sure if Shelley intended, and I'm not big on author intent, and so this doesn't Mm -hmm. bother me. I'm, I'm not sure that she intended him to be as dislikable as he is because he has that like weird moral on his deathbed that seems like it kind of comes out of the blue. Like, you know, don't be so ambitious, Walton. And then Walton is like, okay, I'll turn around and go back. And it kind of seems as if she's trying to bring some kind of norm in there coming from the mouth of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Um, But he immediately undermines his own norm because he never humbles himself or makes any decision from any position of humility ever. Um, I think Victor's a villain, not at all a tragic hero. But I don't know if that's exactly what Shelley intended. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm okay with that dissonance. Um, but I I do wonder about it sometimes here find at the your, end of his life.
1: Do you guys find yourselves rooting for him to survive at the end? Or rooting for him to get his comeuppance and...
2: Frankenstein or the monster?
1: The, the mo- Frankenstein. Because you said you think he's a... Well villains, so is he the, is this the first well maybe not the first, but is this like, you know, a Tony Soprano's anti-hero thing going on here where we're rooting for the bad we're rooting for the bad guy? Is that what you're saying?
2: No, I'm not rooting for him at all. I wanted him to have a more violent death. <laughs> <laughs> I, if ha- you- Heidi, oh no,
0: Heidi,
3: no, no you, please care.
2: Heidi, do you think that
0: vengeance, the spirit of vengeance, is uh, the monster's flaw?
2: Perhaps yes. If that, yeah, I think I think that that's that would fit mm-hmm. because without that, if he could overcome that, he could mm-hmm. have been redeemed at mm-hmm. multiple right. points, which no. is what you're looking for with a tragic right. hero. Right. He he, really he becomes
3: consumed by it. Mm-hmm. Josh, what were you going to say? That's I was going to say that I want to point out just one of Victor's closing speeches, which are um, he's given us. Almost what seems like three different speeches that could count as deathbed speeches, but I want to look at the.
0: Of course, not just one for Victor.
3: Yeah. <laughs> but I want to look at the one that is actually the last thing that he says, and this is—I mean, this is in chapter. No, this is in the letter that begins September 12th. Um, Victor's death is is odd. Um, as I suggested earlier in the show, I simply don't believe that he's sick. Um, He's lasted for too long. He's done too much work. He's he's not presented as somebody who's having coughing fits and dying of, you know, some disease that he picked up from moving through the tundra or something like that. Um, He's he's more or less uh, in, in decent health a month after they pick him up like he survived for a long time. These are his his dying words. Um, My judgment and ideas are already disturbed by the near approach of death. I dare not ask you to do what I think right, for I may still be misled by passion. He says, I may still be misled by passion. That he should live to be an instrument of mischief disturbs me in other respects this hour, when I momentarily expect my release is the only happy one which I have enjoyed for several years. The forms of the beloved dead flit before me, and I hasten to their arms. Farewell, Walton. Seek happiness and tranquility, and avoid ambition, even if it be only the apparent innocent one of distinguishing yourself in science and discoveries. Yet, why do I say this? I have myself been blasted in these hopes. Yet another may succeed. Um, Victor is a person who's so inconstant and so movable, he, he seems to die the way that a, that a tissue disintegrates in water. Like He's so spineless. He doesn't stand for anything. In, in his final words, he, he can't give any definitive advice. He's like, do this. Don't do this, but maybe you could do it, even though I didn't do it. And like, make up your mind, like in assessing and looking back over your whole life, can you not figure out any definitive lesson? Like here on your deathbed, it's like, well, maybe you shouldn't do this, but maybe you should, but I I don't know. And this is just the way that he talks in the last several days of his death. It's entirely different from the monster. Like the monster makes this definitive speech. Goodbye, sucky world. I'm going to go kill myself and be done with this. Goodbye. Mic drop leaves. But Victor's just, he just kind of falls apart at the end. And I could almost believe that he dies because he just never stood for anything. And his, and no. his soul got sick of being stuck to this um, inconstant, pathetic body and, and, and simply quit in protest uh, <laughs> of, how, of how inconsistent he was. Is there a chance he's, that he actually is committing suicide though? No, no. I think he loses his will to live, but he doesn't do any violence to himself. So uh, that's not a suicide. It is interesting. where
1: he, he says, why don't, "Why don't you go ahead and take over this this, this task of destroying the monster?" And then right. and then he says, eh, eh, maybe you shouldn't." Oh, but what if you maybe. did? <laughs> but what if you did? Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> And it, but, which is interesting because it really is like he lives his life as if life is a series of theories to test, right? You know, like it's a like Reddit
0: th- a Reddit, thread. Yeah, exactly,
1: right? exactly. <laughs> that, that's a pretty accurate way of putting it. Frankenstein lives his life like it's a Reddit thread. But I mean, even when he's creating, you know, creating Frankenstein, it's like it, it's like it's a it's an experiment or it's a theory to see how it turns out, and then mm-hmm. you know he starts building the monsters, Eve and it's testing those theories and trying new things. And then he says, ah, I don't really want to do this. And, um, <laughs> and then throughout yeah, if,
3: if we look just a couple paragraphs earlier, we get this line when actuated by selfish and vicious motives, I ask you to undertake my unfinished work. Yeah. And I renew this request now when I'm only induced by reason and virtue. Like I think he actually goes back and forth three times, just in a single sentence. Like it was wrong of me to ask you to do this, but I'm going to ask you to do it again because the first time it wasn't for proper motives. Okay, so then we get we
1: get Walton. We get he's our framing device, obviously, so we should talk about that that part of it. But also why does he respond to the monster the way he does? I mean, maybe it's just surely that's the nature of his character. He says I was at first touched by the expressions of his misery. Yet when I called to mind what Frankenstein had said of his powers of eloquence and persuasion, and when I again cast my eyes on the lifeless form of my friend, indignation was rekindled within me. Um they go on for a little bit. They have this discussion before the monster throws himself off. Um, and then in the end, we don't really get him offering any assessment of what happened to his sister, because, you know, like a dramatist, he ends with the phrase, he was borne away by the waves and lost in darkness and distance. And then, you know, it was his, I assume that was Shelley's, um, imitation of, of, uh, Fitzgerald writing the great Gatsby there. But, um, I mean, what do we make of the way Walton responds? Because he doesn't really draw back and tell his sister anything more than his experience. Um, and so why, for example, does he not take up the mantle that Frankenstein suggested maybe he should or shouldn't take? Um, or why does he why does the monster not kill Walton? I mean, I guess if his vengeance has been served, then maybe he, maybe he really is. It's just about vengeance for him. But the Walton doesn't seem threatened by the monster, which would suggest that the monster wasn't being threatening. Or Walton's a very brave sort of fella, like you know, uncommonly.
2: <laughs> he seems at at one point Walton does to be, uh, very to find the monster's speech very compelling. Uh, And then he's it's the narrative tells us he remembers that Frankenstein told him that the monster was persuasive and manipulative or whatever his words are. And then he rejects him, which goes to what Josh said earlier, like the pathos of, of this potential, even beyond the grave, Victor is corrupting everybody against the monster. Like, and so that nobody, as you said, Josh gets, the monster never gets what he deserves, um, whether mercy or justice. And um, and that is, so it seems that Walton has this, is rejecting the monster out of, who just wants a friend, and he just wants a friend, as Josh said, out of loyalty to Victor, whom he sees as a friend. He's like, well, I can't be friends with this guy because Victor told me not to is really what he's saying um so it's somewhat out of virtue and then the reader has the chance to decide whether that's misplaced or not
0: yeah i I would just like to sort of um pick up on that by reading if we can the passage where the you know there are several passages where the monster explains himself to Walton um, but since we have been talking about virtue and, and just sort of this complicated figure um, it's still, again, in that last letter closer to the end where after, uh, after Walton says that, you know, he sort he's sort of touched, but then he calls him a wretch and the monster responds, Oh, it is not thus, not thus interrupted the being yet. Such must be the impression conveyed to you by what appears to be the Pur- pur- of my actions. Yet I seek not a fellow feeling in my misery. No sympathy may I ever find. When I first saw it, it was the love of virtue, the feelings of happiness and affection with which my whole being overflowed that I wish to be Um, participated. But now that virtue has become to me a shadow and that happiness and affection are turned into bitter and loathing despair. And what should I seek for sympathy? I am content to suffer alone while my suffering shall endure. When I die, I am well satisfied that abhorrence and oppobrium should load my memory. Once my fancy was soothed with dreams of virtue, of fame, and of enjoyment. Once I falsely hoped to meet with beings who, pardoning my outward form, would love me for the excellent qualities which I was capable of bringing forth. I was nourished with high thoughts of honor and devotion, but now vice has degraded me beneath the meanest animal. No crime, no mischief, no malignity, no misery can be found comparable to mine. When I call over the frightful, when the catalog of my deeds, I cannot believe that I am he whose thoughts were once filled with sublime and transcendent visions of the beauty and the majesty of goodness. But it is even so. The fallen angel becomes a malignant devil. Yet even that enemy of God and man had friends and associates in his desolation. I am quite alone. So this passage is just packed with so much that's in the novel that Shelley's drawing on. The clear connection is between Lucifer in Paradise Lost, um, who becomes a fallen angel, uh, who is the fallen angel becomes a devil but there's also i re, you know i just see percy shelley all over this as well in the middle where he says i had dreams of virtue of fame and of jo- enjoyment like fame is stuck in the middle like what virtuous person who person who's really concerned with virtue says includes fame in a list right um it just these were young people who who were consciously and deliberately seeking fame in their poetry and their philosophy because they were, uh, you know, in those circles. But Shelley, Mary Shelley, was born uh, to famous people, and Percy Shelley kind of uh, latched onto the family in in search of fame. So yeah i i don't know i i didn't mean to go on so long but this is a really key passage i think about the monster but also about everything that Shelley is doing in this novel and the way it reflects what's going on in her life so i'll just stop there for now
2: i agree that is a super key passage like it incre- in fact all of what the monster says here at the end and mm-hmm. i don't sense from the monster in these speeches uh any sense of self-justification he's Mm. he's just saying he he's saying exactly what he did Mm -hmm. and and he doesn't seem to be calling for sympathy he seems resigned to his fate to your point um or his free will choice or Mm both he's he's also
0: adam here right he's also adam railing at god for creating him when he didn't ask to be created that's the other thing we see in this passage he's not only right. lucifer he's also just this you know this victim of of
2: a creator right i thought down at the bottom of that that near the end of the speech i guess it's like a third down or two thirds down when he says, fear not that I shall be the instrument of future mischief. My work Mm. is nearly complete. That really caught my eye, this idea of the work of the monster that he has some sense of, of having a, a, a task that's imposed upon him from the outside that he has to complete before he can die, um, and then he goes on, neither yours nor any man's death is needed to consummate the series of my being and accomplish that which must be done, but it requires my own. Do not think that I shall be slow to perform this sacrifice. So there is this, I, I'm really curious about that, that idea of the monster's work, what he perceives to be his work um, and where that is coming from. That goes to your question, Karen, of fate and free will and all that. And and it's clear from what he says that the thing that will complete or consummate his work is his self immolation. It's his, it's his, the sacrifice Mm. of himself, Mm. which is a Christ-like action, right? To sacrifice oneself for the good of the society, for the good Mm. of the world. Mm. Um, But he's not making any claim to, to be a Christ figure at all. That's, that's, Mm. but that's the work of Christ. So I'm, I'm just the, the complexity Uh, of the interplay between these, this, uh, this mythology that has formed the monster, uh, between Goethe and, and, and Paradise Lost and, uh, and all the books that he read and his experience that he's had and how he has woven those together to create this sense of identity. I think that's the crowning achievement of this novel. Mm -hmm. Um, the, 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 the complex interplay of, of all of these relationships, also with Victor and with Victor's father, as Josh keeps pointing out, and the women in the novel, all of that is never ending. You cannot pull all the threads out. Mm-hmm. Um, and many have tried over, hundreds of, uh, over a couple hundred years to do that. Um, and I think that's where the novel is the greatest. And the monster speech here at the end really brings that back into primary focus.
0: It's really syncretic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, which is why the novel's so important, because it, it just reflects all of the streams of thought that had been taking place over human history and culture uh, for thousands of years, and also points us to what we're in the midst of now, right? It's just kind of prophetic of this mishmash of worldviews and ideas that Lack coherence, but um become sort of it, their own coherence, I guess.
1: And they become these, despite being incoherent. People latch onto them so mm. aggressively that they become their sort of marching orders. Mm. They live yeah. but live according to them, despite
3: their incoherence. Josh, were you going to say something? Yeah, in this this final speech of the monster, um, he he comes off even though he's still. Uh, quite young, all things, uh, you know, taken all together. He talks like an old man Mm -hmm. at the end of his life. Um, And there's the, there's the moment in this speech where he says, basically when I was young, I would have wept to die. Now it is my only consolation. Mm -hmm. And that, even though the monster's quite young, That line suggests the arc of a very long life. Um, Young people would weep to die because they love the world because the world is a good place because they think people are good because they assume everyone has the same good intentions that they do. Uh, But the monster has received so much. He's he now has a very long list, uh, a very long record of wrongs that have been done against him and his opinion of the world has changed. He used to think of the world as a good place in those first couple of years when he delighted in nature and he watched the De DeLacy family and and he had this image of stability and goodness. The world seemed such a wonderful place. He would hate for anything to snatch this vision of the world away from him. But now his only consolation is the knowledge that he will escape this place, this place that he used to love. And uh, it's because the world, the whole world has soured on him. Um, So, you know, at the end of his life, he does take his own life. But in a way, he takes his own life as an icon of the world, the world that has never done him any favors, the world that he's absolutely sick of. He's not just sick of his own life. He's also sick of what other people have done with his life. And in, and in killing himself, he is removing that thing that other people have abused. Um, he's, he's sick of the abuse. He's sick of other people. Ultimately, uh, ultimately, he does turn out like his father. Uh, he's sick of people at the end of his life. I'm tired of you. And he goes off to do what his father seems to have wanted to have done for a long time, um, which is to, which is to escape the world through violence
1: seems like he's also experi he, he he says i look on the hands which executed the deed i think on the heart in which the imagination of it was conceived and long for the moment when they will meet my eyes when it will haunt my thoughts no more and so it seems like he you know the, there's a sense of guilt which also is or or conscience which is there as well which is haunting him and playing into the that sort of yeah. Desire to he leave knows, the world. Did.
3: That's right. Yeah, some of it he feels as though it's deserved. Like, I killed other people with these hands. I'm going to kill myself now. And it's only right, given given what these hands have done.
0: We also don't want to skip one of the most moving and poignant lines in the whole novel, which is in the middle of all this that we've been looking at. Um, and it's at the end of a paragraph in the middle of the speech where he says of himself, I, the miserable and the abandoned, am an abortion to be spurned at and kicked and trampled on. Even now, my blood boils at the recollection of this injustice. Um, he calls himself an abortion to be spurned at and kicked and trampled on. And of course, you know, lots has, lots has been written about, uh, uh, Shelley's own uh you know, her mother's death after her birth and then uh at this point I think Shelley had lost one infant um shortly after a, a premature birth um so there's just so much biographical stuff here but again here is the creation calling himself an abortion um which you know of his creator, he doesn't say that, but that's what's suggested here, um, in the context of this whole speech. Uh, it's it, this is this is I this is the, this is the part where I mean this is the whole speech, but the that that line in particular is where I think um, Shelley uh, asks us to have more sympathy and empathy for this monster than ever.
1: You know, I mean, it helps that we're inside his head here too. We're hearing from him because the other Mm -hmm. times when we feel the most sympathy for him are when he's in the cave and he's watching the, the family whose name I always forget. Um, The DeLacy's. The DeLacy's. Yeah. Um, When he's watching them and he wants to be such a, so much a part of their family and he wants to experience that that sort of camaraderie Mm -hmm. and love. Mm -hmm. We feel a lot of sympathy for him during that time. And then he goes in to visit the old man and the old man is you know who can't see is, you know may have accepted him, but then the the children the young the, the the his children come in and they drive the monster away, and so from then on you know that he doesn't he doesn't get what he's looking for there, and so those are the moments when we have, when we're inside his head we're able to feel sympathy for him, otherwise we're in Frankenstein's head, and weirdly we rarely feel Frank feel sympathy for Frankenstein despite the fact that we're in his head, which is maybe a Proof of the consistency with which Shelley's is able to create to render these characters who are inconsistent themselves, like there's a consistency in, in her ability to draw those inconsistencies. If that makes sense, um, but I guess that's just called skill. Okay. Do we need to talk at all before we go today about this framing device, Karen? I know that's you. You brought that up a couple times today. Should we talk about that now? Should we save it for the Q and A? Should we? What do you think?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think we hit the main point, which is just that, um, it's not just, you know, a, a neat literary device, like, oh, let's tell this story through letters. Uh, it is that, but it, it, you know, it is in Walton that we see, I think, um, the most redemption that the novel has to offer. So, um, I think that's important, but uh, yeah, maybe, maybe there are people who have questions about that. Um,
1: well let me let me ask this just before we go. So Josh has talked especially about the idea of people not being trustworthy and saying things other than what they actually mean and mm. all those sorts of things, being dishonest. Does that dishonesty is it possible that any of that dishonesty is coming actually through Walton as our as the one who is recording the story? Um, I know that we get Frankenstein who. Right. Sick claims that he says that claim, Frankenstein, you know, edited some of it. But to what degree can we totally trust Walton's uh, retelling of the story, um, or do we just have to take that at face value?
0: Yeah, I I think that um, it's you know I think in the context of the, where the novel was and its development in history and the de- different devices that were used and the epistolary device was a common one. I I don't think we're s- supposed to question. Um, the veracity of walton's letters um or his recording and of 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 the speeches i just i think that's an that's not called for um within the form as 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 it is or as it was then we're supposed to you know we're it's a willing suspension of disbelief right we're supposed to just believe sure. that um that he wrote these letters and he recorded all these things and and, and sure. that's a that's an element of realism, yeah. um, for the time,
1: and you can see she's trying to make it more believable here and there, like right, right, you know, dividing it up, and the way she comments right. on the process. Josh, what were you going to say? Oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't remember what I'm okay. <laughs> do you, so? Do you agree with Karen then? Like, just that the that Walton we were supposed to accept Walton as yeah. a sort of truth teller, and then the the dishonesty as to to oversimplify yeah. what you were saying, but the dishonesty comes from Frankenstein. I,
3: I would agree with that. And its um, I was struck in, in finishing the book again, um, j- just how much longer the 1831 ending is. And the 1831 ending, um, you know, goes on and on and on in Victor's delusions while searching for the monster. So, so a lot is added in this Arctic journey where um, where Victor communes with the spirits of the dead, and he has conversations with them, and they're guiding him. And he tricks himself, he even states this, he tricks himself into believing that his dreams are real and his waking life is a dream, uh, because in his dreams he gets to be with his friends, and then he goes back to this hellacious nightmare, which is his life. And so, uh, you know, the longer that, the longer that Shelley thought about the character... The more appropriate it seemed for the whole, uh, for the book to end in this uh, cataclysm of delusion, um, and and the, the whole end of you know so much of the end of Victor's life is spent um, trading what's real for what's fake and what's fake for what's real, where Victor can't even really tell the difference. Victor even says that more or less in the eighteen thirty one edition. I wanted to get to the point where I couldn't tell the difference between delusion and, and reality. I wanted to switch them uh, as absolutely as I could. So it seemed like the more Shelley thought about it, the more she realized that Victor didn't have a grip on reality um, and that he himself was pursuing this, this reality that was not trustworthy.
1: Heidi, do you want to come up with a phrase that's better than cataclysm of delusion?
2: I liked Hellacious Nightmare, which is his life. <laughs> it's like, so I think Josh is on a roll. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> um.
1: No, truly though. Do you have any final thoughts you wanna you wanna put up there, and then we'll go back around again. Just we, if anybody wants to add one final thing,
2: we did not talk at all about the wedding night. God. Um, no. So um,
1: should we? Should we? We can do it now. We can. We have a few minutes, or we maybe we don't. I don't know. You, you, you didn't say.
2: Well, I definitely want. E- if we don't talk about it today, I am charging our readers, our listeners. Somebody ask, me me a ask a question. Question about <laughs> yeah. it. <Readers>. Um, <laughs> Because that is important. So,
1: I was thinking about how when we were talking about the Aristotelian tragedies, that I got to thinking about Shakespeare. Once you said that, Heidi, mm-hmm. and how the idea of the Shakespearean comedy where it le- leads to this wedding and the the society is united in some way, and I was thinking how and so it feels like the novels leading to this wedding and then it just sort of flips that, you know, like. The, he thinks he's leading up to that point. He he makes this huge deal about how he's journeying to the wedding night, yep. and then it just sort of you know everything kind of is what you'd think is supposed to happen is inverted. But yeah, we can talk about that later. Um, someone ask a question. It can just be like, so what do you guys think about the wedding night? <laughs> <laughs> someone put that at the top of the thread. We'll try to get to it first. Unless unless Josh or Karen, you want to add something now, or should we save nah, it? Now we should save it.
0: We can save yeah. it.
1: Okay. Okay. Karen, what do you want to pitch? What do you, what do you've got going on?
0: Uh, let's see. Um, last week, I think it was, it seems so long ago, but last week I released a little article at think Christian on the new documentary on Flannery O'Connor called just called Flannery. Mm -hmm. So I would pitch, you can read my little review. Um, but also just, it's an, it's a now available, virtually available documentary on Flannery O'Connor, which, um, Yeah, I think it would be great for people to watch.
1: I actually have an email in my inbox with the press copy of that to go watch it because I'm going to interview those guys for for Forma. So yeah, I'm excited about that. I need to read your review. Josh, what about you? What do you want to pitch? You got your class coming up.
3: Yes. uh, Registration is now open at GibbsClassical.com where I'm offering Foundations of Modern Politics for the fall. It's a 16-week class. And you can go over to the website and learn more about it, gibbsclassical.com. Heidi, how about you?
2: I'm going to pitch the former podcast. This afternoon, I am interviewing an illustrious leader of our community, Mr. David Kern. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We also have upcoming Flannery O'Connor filmmakers, um, and we got lots of cool stuff coming up on that. So keep an eye out for, for the podcast.
1: Yeah. Thanks for that. Okay. Well, with that, let's uh, say farewell. So for Joshua Gibbs, for Heidi White and for Karen Swallow Pryor, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading.